in the next few weeks looking at um, some practices. And uh, we've, we've titled the, the series Practice with Purpose. Um, and there's a, there's a point to that, and we'll, we'll see why that is now. But um, let's maybe start by praying. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who is alive and active, and that you are a, a God who is personal and intimate. You are infinitely powerful and transcend above everything that we can know or understand in the universe, Lord. But we, we also know that you are a father. You reveal yourself as a father to his children. And so, so God, I pray this morning that, that you would be intimate with us this morning as we come and we search your word and um, we, we search through the, just the, the faculties that you've given us, Lord, that we would be open to your movement and your speaking to our heart, that you would come and speak to us through your word, through you, Holy Spirit would be active as the presence of God with us this morning. Lord, we want to give you glory with our lives. We want to give you praise and, and honor with everything that we have. And so, Father, I pray that you would come and change us more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. Amen. John Mark Comer says this amazing thing. He says, we are all being formed. He's a pastor, by the way. He says, we are all being formed. President Trump is a product of spiritual formation. Mother Teresa is a product of spiritual formation. Gandhi was spiritually formed. Hitler was spiritually formed. I'm spiritually formed. You're spiritually formed. We're being formed. We will be formed. It's just a part of who we are. Yeah, we are all shaped and formed by the world and by the influences around us, whether we like it or not, whether we're intentional about it or not. We're all formed by the things that we see, the stuff we listen to, the people we interact with, the things we read, what goes on in our society. We're all formed by those things. We're formed by the fact that we went through a lockdown and a pandemic or that there were floods and riots in KZN. We're all formed by those. Those are just some big examples that we have. But if you experience a tragedy that has, a, that has an impact on you, that forms you in a certain way, the parents you have, the house you grew up in, that forms you in a certain way. It, it conditions you to think about certain situations. And you notice most of those when you get married. That's the first time you're really like, Yo, we, other people are different from me. And I don't know why you're so different, but if you'd be more like me, it'd be fine. But a large part, we are formed by marriage as well, by, the, by your spouse. But if you think about it, a large part of the, the difficulties we face in marriage is because we are... We are formed in two different households. So those households deal with things differently. And then we come together and we're like, but why aren't you taking out the rubbish? That was my dad's job. And you're like, no, but my mom did it. So you should. And then we're like, well, no, that's not how it works in our house. And you've got to be formed into something new. And you can be intentional about that or not. But we are all individually formed. And we are not only just, just formed randomly. There are things that we give ascendancy to or things that we give more importance to that form us more. Alexander Fenter puts it like this. He says, whoever or whatever we follow, believe, and give ultimate value to in our lives spiritually forms us over time into its image. Whoever or whatever we follow, if we're choosing politicians or if we're choosing rogue billionaire businessmen, superstars, or musicians, whoever we choose, whoever we look at most often and follow will form us into its image. It's an incredibly 
it's an incredibly scary revelation because what are the things that we look at and watch and try to be like and they form us into their image so it's not a question of do you want to be transformed it's not a question of do you want to be changed it's a question of how how do you want to be transformed and secondly do you want to have an active say in that or are you just going to let it happen to you as the world goes by scripture is clear that we need transformation of our minds in order to become more and more like Christ. It also says that we need training in our whole lives to live and be more godly. So 1 Timothy 4, if you're there, we're in chapter 4 of, of Paul's first letter to Timothy. I'm just going to read two verses. He says this in verses 7 and 8. So 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Have nothing, can you say nothing, to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. How much of what... The world spouts. Have you been on social media later? How much of what the algorithm pushes at you is godless myths and old wives' tales? Most of it. If you think about it, you think about where it comes from and the presuppositions that some of that stuff is built on. It is godless myths, friends. But Paul writing to Timothy like 2,000 years ago almost, have nothing to do with godless myths, myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly. You've got to train yourself. It takes a bit of effort. For physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things. Can you say all things? For which things? All things. Godliness has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. You see that all things for me is the kicker in this. We've got to be, become intentional about the formation and the training ourselves in godly ways in godly ways because one of the benefits for that is that when we do that when we become more like jesus more like god it benefits every area of our life all things this put this is what the scripture says not me godliness has benefit for all things in our lives so and, and this is why dallas willard he's he's an he's incredibly good on the spiritual disciplines and he was a, an amazing um, Christian philosopher and thinker, but he says the only thing we can take into our next life that we have influence over now is who we are. The only thing that we can take into the next life that we can change now is who we are. We get to choose how to form our character and who we are now and continue being that into eternity. It's an incredible thought. Like the, the stuff I do now rings into eternity. Yeah, there was more than just just Russell Crowe in that movie. It's scriptural. I believe that what Paul is saying is that when we train ourselves to become more godly, when we're intentional about our transformation, it'll have, it'll have benefits for every area of our lives. That's the all things. So when, when we become more like Jesus, when we are intentional about our transformation into His likeness, and we, we start to live godly lives, you'll become a better mom. You'll become a better husband. You'll become a better business person. You become a better student. It's incredible. All things. Think of an area of your life. You become, it has benefit for all things. The more you become like Jesus, the better farmer you'll be. The better son or the better daughter. Every area of our life benefits from us becoming more godly. Now, before we get too far down the road and think it's all up to me and what I'm going to do, there's, a, there's an important fact we need to know and we sang about it in that second song is that transformation doesn't actually 
and I'm going to be careful how I say this, but I'm going to say it bluntly, it doesn't actually change us into something we're not. It doesn't make us something new. Stick with me on this. Don't go like, oh, then I'm not going to do it. Transformation reveals our identity. The identity change happens at salvation. The moment we come by grace through faith to salvation in Christ, that moment we are, we are a new creation. We are something new. We're not just glossed over and made a bit better. We are forgiven of our sins. You are a new creation in Christ. You are something completely new. You have a completely new identity. But we need to work that salvation out. That salvation also looks like something for the rest of our lives. Salvation is a moment, but it's more than that. It starts at a moment, but it's more than that. It's a process through the rest of our lives. And part of this transformation is uncovering and discovering and becoming more of who we truly are. Derek Morphew writes this. He says, put simply, truly knowing your identity enables your transformation. It does not work the other way around. You do not first transform and then get a new identity. That would be a works righteousness. That would be us earning our way into salvation. Then, then we could be proud of ourselves. But you see, when salvation comes first, there's nothing of us in that. It's Jesus has done the work on the cross. And it's only through him that new identity that we can then live that thing out. So, for some of you, the talk of an active transformation or an active formation in your spiritual life might be like a a radical new concept, but it it really shouldn't be. It shouldn't be new or strange. You know, we understand that that in most of the rest of our lives, the the way we lead lives or, or anything else that we do takes practice. So, for instance, if, if somebody wanted to be an elite athlete, let's say a friend of yours or a child said, I want to be a sprinter. You go, all right, what you've got to do is you're just going to go outside and run a sub-1000. You got it? Off you go. Or if your child wanted to be, like, be pole vaulting, you're like, right, there's a long pole, hole in the ground, haven't got any mats, but uh, off you go. Six meters, a little bit over six meters is where you need to be. You, you laugh because it's ridiculous. You know, or how about a, if, you, if your child wanted to be a musician? Okay, so there's Beethoven's fifth, off you go. You get, it's going to be preposterous. So we understand that in, in almost every, or in your child, you know, if you want to go into business, you, you've got to understand things about that particular kind of business. You'll be like, okay, if I've got two rand, don't spend four. Because one rand fifty belongs to the tax man. So you... You've got to understand those things, and you learn those things, but we, yet in our spiritual lives, we don't do that. We don't think it takes practice. We don't think we have to train. We're going to, if we want to be like, if we want to be more like Jesus, it's going to take practice, and part of that practice is that it, it's costly. You have to learn to live differently. You're going to go to music lessons. It might mean you can't play rugby, because music lessons and rugby at the same time, so you've got to, you're going to cost you something. Well, you've got to physically pay for it, for the music lesson. You go to somebody, you go, hey, I need to learn what you've got. Same with sport. It's going to cost you. You've got to put the time and effort in. You want to run the comrades? Man, you've got to run 1,000 Ks between January and June. That's far. It's a lot of time on the road. You've got to wake up early. You've got to sacrifice time. Buy new shoes. It costs us. And in our spiritual lives, if we're going to train and become more and more like Jesus, it's going to cost us as well. There's a price to be paid in our discipleship to Jesus. We're going to have to say no to some things of the world. We're going to have to say, sorry, I can't come out to dinner with you. 
Or, like, I can't run that race on a Sunday morning. Or, I can't, whatever it is, whatever that cost is for you, I'm not putting my stuff on you. Whatever that cost is, there's a cost to discipleship in Jesus. We have to learn to live differently in order to do that. You see, sometimes in our Christianity, we, when we don't do this, we can go down a couple of roads where we either, we, we get strict with people, and we say, well, you've made a decision, now you must be different. Now, for me, my, my moment of salvation, it was quite a radical, there was quite a, quite a sudden change in my life in that moment. But for many people, it's not. It's a gradual change. There has been gradual change for me after that. But if, when, when we see people get saved and we're like, yeah, you must be instantly different. And when they're not, you're like, maybe, maybe you shouldn't tell people that you're a Christian until you start getting it right. We get strict with people, hey? Really? We do. Or we get down on ourselves and we think that we're failures. We begin to doubt. You know, maybe that salvation, maybe it was just like an emotional thing. I was a bit down and that guy said some nice things and made me feel good. But, you know, I'm not actually that different. Like three months later, I'm kind of doing the same things and, you know, I still, still kick the dog in the morning and I still use the wrong words. And we think that because it didn't work one time, that it hasn't worked at all. Or we look at others who, we, who, who they think they've got it all together and we see the hypocrisy and we're like, I want none of that because they're trying to keep up an appearance. But all of these mistakes and flaws that are made in, in modern Christianity, I think, are because we're unaware or unwilling to realize that the identity change that God has brought about in our very nature is, in other words, making us something we never were before, requires training and discipline to work out and to live out in our lives. We've got to form new habits in line with our identity. The identity must be settled first, and then out of that, we, we form new habits. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, in the spirit of the disciplines, it's a brilliant book. I don't encourage you to read it. He says, the general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intended what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. Yeesh. Kind of pushes on some sore points, but it's very true. We want to live healthy, but yeah, I like chocolate. No, amen. 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 Thank you, Reed. But you, you see, the, the other thing is we, we go from legalism to what is known as, let's just call it hyper-grace. And some may argue, and you go, well, we're under, we're under God's grace. His grace covers everything. His grace is sufficient for my life. And you're right, but it's a dangerous half-truth. I believe in hyper-grace, and we're going to get there now, now on to what kind of hyper-grace I believe in. But God's grace is enough. And it will suffice for your life. And it is by grace we are saved. But it's also, there's faith involved. Read all the verses out of Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. You see, God partners with us. Augustine said it like this. He said, without him, we can't. But without us, he won't. For some reason, God chooses to partner with humankind. Created in his image, 
made in his likeness to be his representatives, his vice regents on earth in his kingdom. He chooses to partner with us. And it's not a 50-50 partnership. It's a 100-100 partnership. He gave all of himself and we give all of ourselves. So here's the hypergrace. Paul writes this in his letter to Titus. So two books over from 1 Timothy, if you want to turn there, Titus chapter 2. And it's the same Paul who I quoted now, now to whom God said, my grace is sufficient for you. When Paul was complaining about the thorn in the flesh that he had, the struggle that he had, whatever that might have been, God says, my grace is sufficient. Paul then writes this years later to Titus, Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to read out of the ESV. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodly and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do you see what hypergrace does for us? The NRV reads it a bit different. It says, teaching us to say no to sin or to ungodly lives and worldly passions. Do you see it there? Grace does two things out of this verse. The full grace of God. It doesn't enable us to sit on our bums under a tree waiting for God to change everything. Grace teaches us to say no. It instructs us. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That means that grace tells us that there are some things we have to remove from our lives. That's the hyper grace that I see here. That's the fullness of grace that I see in the Bible. The grace that teaches us to say no to things. And grace, secondly, the second part of that, and to live. Grace means that we must put other things in our lives. We've got to self-control. We've got to put in control in our lives. It doesn't sound like the, the half a message of grace that is preached some places. It's incredible. That's the fullness of grace. This grace of God that appeared bringing salvation tells us that we need to remove some things from our lives and we need to put in some controls in our lives. We need to live in a self-controlled way. It is the, it is the grace of God that enables us to move away from self-interest, from a me, myself, and I spirituality to a focus on Jesus to become more like him. And when we will do this, when we will allow grace to work in us like this, when we will allow grace to turn our eyes away from navel gazing in all of my problems and my, my, because that's the danger of the practices is that it becomes all about me, myself, is that we will become free. You want to live as the most free person? Stop focusing on yourself. Focus on Jesus and what he's busy with and what he's doing. Richard Foster, who Dallas Willard and John Mark Comer base a lot of their stuff on, he says the purpose of the disciplines, so what we're going to talk about now, is liberation from the stifling slavery to self-interest and fear. Liberation from the stifling slavery of self-interest and fear. So what are these practices that we're going to talk about? What are these? So these are the things that we see in the life of Jesus. There are actions that we can take, habits that we can put in our lives, things that Jesus did and taught and preached about that we can do to put us in the presence of God. The practices, and you're going to know some of them. When I'm, I'm just going to mention a few of them just now, but you're going to know some of them. Some of them are going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm doing that already. Yes, that's right. You probably are. Most of us in, in Protestant and, and Pentecostal and now neo-charismatic are, are aware of at least two of them, Bible reading and prayer. Those are spiritual practices that you can do to grow yourself more and more like Jesus. And they're, and they're not for like super spiritual 
giants of the faith. These aren't for like a special forces Christians because there aren't any of those. There's just us. That's all, I'm sorry to say, it's us that Jesus is relying on. We are the church. And they're for everyday people who desire to follow Jesus. For people who wash their cars, for people who mow their lawns, who have jobs, they raise families, singles, married, children, parents, grandparents. These are, what, these are the people that the spiritual disciplines are for. And they're not some like dull drudgery where you have to like tough it out and make it through five chapters of the Bible. I'm done. Meant to suck the last remaining joy out of your life. But on the contrary, once you, once you begin to explore these things, and some of them are not comfortable because there is a denial. There is a saying no to something. There is the cost. But once you push through them, there is a liberation that comes from self-centeredness and fear. And out of that, joy is a natural response. The only requirement in these practices is a longing for God. In all of them, that's the key thing. In all of these practices and all of the things that we're going to look at over the coming weeks is a longing for God in your reading, in your praying, in your fasting, in your silence and solitude, in your giving, in your celebrating, in your worship, in your having meals together. Yes, that's a spiritual discipline. Is a longing for God in those moments. See, it's more than just getting the practices right. We're going to put out some practical stuff every week of what the practice looks like because we're far removed from the, the culture and the time of Jesus where these things, you see, Jesus didn't actually teach very much about them. When he said to his disciples, when you pray, he gave them some hints. He didn't really go like, when he, taught, when he told them, when you fast, he warned them about the heart issue with fasting. But he didn't say, hey, you know, two days before you should stop the coffee and the day before stop the sugar and like ease yourself in. And he didn't say when you break, because it was a natural rhythm of their lives. It was something that they did regularly as part of their spirituality. We have to learn. We're, we're a bit far removed and we're not used to those things. So, and we'll put out those practical things week on week as we look at the practices. But the, the, the disciplines or the practices are not just, it's not just about getting them right. It's not just about going, okay, I didn't say any words for four minutes, so that's my silence done for the day. It's a longing for God. The mechanics are not nearly as important as the heart in these things. When, when, we, have, when we have a conversation with my kids or, or when we have dinner with my kids, there's no, there's no mechanics. The mechanics are not as important as the interaction with the kid. I would rather be with you and have you use poor English than say, oh, you can't be with me until you learn to speak properly. Yet some of us think God's like that. We've got to use certain words and we can only, you've got to, got to, before he'll listen to us. But he's not. He's a loving father. Richard Foster puts it like this again. He says, he carries on. He says, to know the mechanics does not mean that we are practicing the disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are an inward and spiritual reality and the inner attitude of the heart is far more crucial than the mechanics for coming into the reality of the spiritual life. You see, our, Part of this, and, and part of the reason why we do this, and, and, and I'm harping on the identity thing and the internal, is because our willpower itself is not enough to change us. How many of you have ever tried to kick a habit? Yeah, a few of us. How, how'd that go for you? 
See, it's quite tough, eh? You, the hardest thing I ever had to do, habit-wise, was give up smoking. It's incredibly difficult. It is like, don't start, guys. Don't start. Just don't go down that road. Save yourself the trouble. Smoking's bad. It'll ruin your life. But to give up, I, I, and I was good at giving up, eh? I must have given up like 39 times. But seriously, I tried everything. I tried like cold turkey. I tried cutting down. I tried changing brands that I didn't like. I tried chewing gum. Sure. Chewing gum and the cigarettes together is no good. I tried the tablets, the Zyban things. Man, those things made me anxious and nervous. I tried a whole lot of different things. Will, our willpower alone is not enough to change us. We must realize that our willpower only deals with the externals. We cannot will ourselves to not sin or to eradicate sin from our lives. Inner righteousness is a gift from God to be graciously received. The needed change within us is God's work, not ours. That's Richard Foster. It's God's work, not ours. The point of the disciplines isn't to change you. It's to form new habits so that you put yourself in God's presence. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 out of the ESV reads like this. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And this teaching, friends, is found throughout Scripture. It is the cornerstone of the Christian faith that we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior, and He is the free gift of righteousness. It's that abundance of grace of God, that same grace that teaches us to say no and puts self-control in our lives, gives us Jesus, a free gift. We cannot save ourselves. He is the one who saves us. He is the one. When we put ourselves in His presence, He does the work in the needed change. So the pendulum swing on that is obviously then sitting under the tree waiting for God to come and change us, but that's faulty and debased, as we've already said. So spiritual practices for me are the best answer that I've seen to this dilemma of what to do or what not to do and how much do we do and when do we do it. Because the practices allow us to place ourselves before God so that He can transform us. Did you get that? Because we very quickly also slip into like a earning brownie points before God. Yes, I've done four Hail Marys and five Our Fathers, like you've done spiritual burpees and now you feel like you deserve something. But that's not what it is. We're simply putting ourselves before God and allowing Him to do the work in us. And now farmers, you understand this. Farmers, you, you, but by what you do, you intuitively understand this process. And I want to encourage you to apply it to your life. You cannot, you cannot make bananas or sugarcane or macadamia nuts grow. You physically cannot make those things grow. All you do is you have a part to play in creating the conditions around the environment, and even that, you don't have control over all of those conditions. A farmer will plow the soil, he'll plant the seed or the tree, or the, and he'll make sure that the soil, he'll do measurements, make sure the soil's got the right nutrients. If it doesn't, you add some stuff. Make sure it's, try to make sure the water you know, stays at like the right level. Pull the weeds out. Don't let other people in there. Make sure you've got, and you create all of these perfect conditions for this stuff to grow, and then you wait. But it's only God that causes that plant to grow or those trees to produce fruit. You can do all the things around the crop, 
except make the crop grow. It's an incredible thing. And you see that. You, you deal with it every day. And it's the same in our spiritual lives. It's the same in our transformation. We do have a part to play. We do need to be faithful in plowing and tilling and pulling out weeds and removing things and putting ourselves in the right places. But it's God that brings the fruit. It's God that brings the growth. It's God that brings the transformation. It's a hundred, hundred, us and him. Richard Foster calls this disciplined grace. He says it's disciplined because it requires action and discipline on our part, but it's grace because it's free. So there's a danger. One caveat, just as we getting to the end here. The danger is that the practices degenerate into law. So we become those who get legalistic and we start getting, and there's two things, there's two ways to see that, and it is pride and fear. If you see those two things coming in around your spiritual practices, you know, wait, hang on, let's have a heart check. Maybe I'm getting a bit legalistic about these things. So pride comes in because we start to think, I'm getting it right. I'm a good Christian, look at me. I'm working my way up the ranks. I'm becoming more important in God's eyes because I have done all of these different things. And we've, we start to do them so that other people can see them. And this is what Jesus attacked when he said, when you fast, don't disfigure yourself. Don't let people know that you're fasting because it's not about everybody else around you. That's a prideful thing. When you pray, go into a quiet room. That's what he meant. He meant not that we shouldn't pray publicly, but that we don't do it to show off to other people. He's addressing heart issues of pride. And the second thing is fear. Fear because we start to wonder if we can actually control this thing. We dread losing control of our own change and transformation. We don't want to give that up to God. We want to be in control of what we want to change now. And we're like, Lord, don't deal with that thing. I'm not ready. Let's deal with this thing. And God's like, that one's more important. Let's go there. Legalism says, I know better. And we start to do what Paul says to the Colossians not to do in 2.21, where they say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul's saying, don't, you know, don't go down that road. It's unhelpful for you. We start to put laws in place, and we start to go, this is what you can and can't do. So what are these things? What are these activities that Jesus practiced and preached about? He taught his disciples about them. He modeled them for us. And really, it's I'm going to name a few here, but this isn't an exhaustive list. It's such things like solitude and silence. And you go, well, when did Jesus do that? Well, he did 40 days in the desert right at the beginning. And then it also says during his ministry, it says he withdrew to lonely places. He withdrew away from the crowd, sometimes away from all of his disciples on his own. And they would be looking for him. Jesus knew that he needed time with the Father, alone, on his own. Prayer was an obvious one. You know that Jesus prayed, yes? God, I shouldn't have to explain that one. He lived simply, frugality in old language, minimalism in modern language. He didn't have much more than he needed. Sacrificial living, intense study and meditation upon God's word and God's ways, service to others, fasting, and we're going to go on and on. But these practices are what we're going to look at over the next few weeks as a community. And so my invitation to you is to join us as we practice them. We're going to preach about one on a Sunday for the next few weeks, however long it goes for, and then we'll put out some stuff during the week for the small groups and for people, so you'll have some tangible, just a one sheet on what it looks like, um, a little bit of a teaching around it, and then what it looks like and how to do the practice. But I want to invite you to join us as we do that, and look for the change in yourself. And, and really, what we're looking for here is 
the presence of God. We are seeking God. Because when we carry the presence of God into our communities, into our daily lives, into our businesses, into our schools, we will change the community around us. And how many of us want to see our community and our region changed? Amen? Changed. Amen? Leo Tolstoy, I'll leave you with this one. This is one we don't often quote. Leo Tolstoy says, Everybody thinks of changing humanity, but nobody thinks of changing himself. We all want the world to change, but it starts with me getting into the presence of God and allowing Him to transform me into the likeness and the image of His Son, Christ, so that we can go and do what Jesus did. And that's the essence of our discipleship, to be with Jesus, to become like Him, to go and do what He did. And part of the result, as we go out, what we're going to look for in this, the result of this spiritual formation and transformation that comes, is that we become not only changed and transformed, but we become aware of the activity of God in other people's lives. How many of us as we go about our daily lives are concerned with what God is doing in me? Lord, what are you saying to me as we walk around, going into the shops, into business? Like, what are you showing me with this challenge I'm facing? Again, we're a little bit self-absorbed. But what this helps, what these spiritual practices and transformation help us do is like Jesus, we become aware of every person we come into contact with. We become more aware of God's activity in their lives. So that we're asking as we come into contact with people, we're going, Lord, what are you doing in this lady's life? What are you doing in this man's life? What, do you want me to, what part do you want me to play in that? Gary Best, in his book, Naturally Supernatural, points out that God is at work in other people's lives long before we encounter them. Our role is to join in what the Father is already doing. We get involved in what He is already involved in. Whether that be offering some generosity or kindness, perhaps a word of encouragement or a moment of prayer. Friends, I want to challenge you to give whatever the Holy Spirit gives you out of these practices. Whatever He's given you, give to others. So you don't have to wait until next week to start the practice. You can be watchful. As soon as you go out those doors this morning, what is God doing in this person's life, Lord? And how do you want me to get involved? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that there is none like you. I thank you that there is truly no other God like you who gave himself fully for his people. That you came and laid your life down. Abundant grace poured out for us that we get the free gift of righteousness through, through your work, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and settle that in our hearts this week, that we are yours and yours alone, God. Sons and daughters of the household of the king of the universe. I pray that you come and set right any misgivings we have about our identity, God. Anywhere where we feel insecure about whose we are, Holy Spirit, come and reassure us and, and give us that assurance of our salvation. Father, I thank you that because of that, because of what you have done through Jesus, that we are new creations, that we are new in you, Christ. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that by your power, you would come and transform us to live that out now, that you would come and form us more and more to be like Jesus in this world. We want to see you reign, Jesus. We want to see you reign in our lives, in our families, in our area, in our region. We want to see your kingdom advanced, God. And we want to be a part of that, Lord. We long to be a part of what you are doing. So come and show us, Holy Spirit. Amen.